and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. One of my goals was to put out a new episode every week, but going forward, there will be weeks with two episodes. I just can't help it. There are just too many people I want to talk with and share with you. So I'm working harder than ever to build something that I can be proud of, and I strive to keep getting better at interviewing and producing the show. It is by far the best thing I've done in years. Very fulfilling. I love asking questions, and I'm always very curious to find out the stories that shape people's lives and why they create what they do. Please share any feedback you have, and please leave me a rating and review on iTunes. That could help others find this podcast and inspire them to take a chance and give it a try. And if you're listening to this through an app on your phone, be sure to visit Austin Art Talk on your computer and get the full effect of each episode's webpage and to follow the links provided that are relevant to the guests and what we talk about. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook by searching for Austin Art Talk. And if you're thinking about starting your own podcast, reach out and I will do what I can to help. It took me a long time to get over my fear and the technical learning curve, but I am grateful I persevered and so will you. This week's episode is with Austin-based artist Deborah Roberts. Just in the last year, her art career has skyrocketed and she has been selling out shows all over the country and getting lots of press praising her work and giving credit where it is due. But don't think she's just an overnight success. She's been working diligently for years, dedicated to her work, and has had many struggles and humbling moments along the way. Deborah is a delight to be around, or as Michael Anthony Garcia told me, she's a treasure. The interview was, for me, very informative and fun with some hearty laughs mixed in. We go back to her beginnings in art and work our way to the present. Then she explains the meaning and language behind her current work and speaks about the future and her newfound fame and power. Here is Deborah. All right, Deborah. well, thanks for being on my podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, I guess I'll start out by thanking uh, Paloma Mayorga, who's a really good friend of mine. Uh, I interviewed her in episode seven. I asked her not long ago, I said, you know, if there was one artist I could interview, whoever inspires you the most in Austin, who would that be? And she said, Deborah Roberts. So that's why I'm here. That's really great. Uh, she's a wonderful, beautiful artist, so I'm yeah. happy. I'm happy that uh, my work inspires her. Yeah, so. and Michael Anthony Garcia, who I interviewed a few episodes ago, he loves you too. Yeah, that's my bud, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's cool. Yeah, he's really great. He's a good guy. Okay, well, I'm just wondering, um, when you meet someone for the first time and they don't know you, what do you, and they say, well, what do you do, Deborah? What do you say? Uh, always I'm very embarrassed because I think <laughs> when they think that I, when I say an artist they're going to say a bum <laughs> <laughs> the whole so, starving artist yeah yeah myth. yeah they can look at me and see I'm not starving but I uh, <laughs> 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 but I always say I'm an artist and then the next always well what type of art do you do and then I say well I do collage and they face my and I say mixed media and then that kind of helps them yeah. find their way to the art so. okay so when did you, I mean, as far back as you can remember, when did you even know what art was or think that you could be an artist or you had inclinations that way? Mm-hmm. Uh, third grade, I knew, I know exactly when I wanted to be an artist. I didn't, I didn't know that it was an artist. I knew I was, I liked to draw. Yeah. And I didn't know what that meant. 
I didn't know how society saw people who like to draw, but I like to draw all the yeah. time. And um, I remember, I remember the classroom. I remember everything when wow. it was just so clear that I was drawing with this this little kid, and then all of a sudden, you know, I would, you know, I took over drawing better than him. I remember trading uh, paper for some of my art, you know, and stuff. And people ask me all the time. I got, you know, really famous in the third grade because I could uh, draw race cars and oh, really? stuff like that. And <laughs> people all come, will you draw me? It was a line of people, and I was just drawing them. <laughs> you know? I was a rock star in the third grade. I, didn't I had a guy it. like that in my class, too. I remember that. Yeah, and it was really it was really cool. So uh, so the third grade, I definitely knew. Only time that I haven't drawn in my life, I think, was the sixth grade Yeah, when I was uh, busting Austin. Yeah. Um, and we went over to Travis Heights Elementary School, and, oh, God, it was horrible. So, um, you know, we were just pulled out of our communities, and yeah. uh, and I don't think I drew that year. I mean, because I had a horrible teacher, a horrible experience, so. Where did you? Where were you before that? Then Sims Elementary School. Okay, what part of Austin is East it? Austin in okay. East Austin, and we would bust over to I guess South Austin where Travis yeah. Heights Elementary School is. Mm-hmm. Why did they do that? They they wanted things to be equal, and it wasn't. Okay. You know, it was forced busing. Well, uh, let me just correct that now as an adult. It's, it's forced busing when 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 Anglo's have to move over to the to the black part of town. Yeah. Um, that's forced busing. Yeah. When when black kids have to move over to the white part of town, that's mandatory busing. It's not quite different, but you know, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's forced for us also because we're now leaving our neighborhoods and things like that that we knew, and we knew people and teachers who cared about us, and yeah. we could walk home all the way across town to mm. an area where people really didn't want you there to change the whole dynamics of their school and their neighborhoods, and uh, they weren't happy. So. Mm. Mm-hmm. It was the last part of busing. I got the last part of Austin busing, you know, because I'm sure they had busing way before then. But they quit that back then. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. good. Okay. Why do you think, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but why do you think the kids at that school were so, I mean, why were the, they so the, mean? The kids weren't mean, it was the teachers. Oh, the teachers. Mm-hmm. Oh. The kids didn't understand, you know, they, I mean, I don't think they really knew about blackness. You know, when you're just in the sixth grade, you just think about, you know, whether you're going to be like, what type of dress you have on, yeah. what little girls can, you know, things like that. The the teachers, and the teachers, I think, taught the students how to react to us, mm-hmm. which I did not like. I remember oh. every little kid, I remember Travis Heights Elementary, every little kid was a little, little bodega store up the street, and every morning, kids would go up there and get candy and come back, you know, to class. And I remember when I got off the bus and I decided... That I was gonna, I had birthday money, and mm-hmm. I was gonna go to that little store, buy me some, you know, some um, some potato chips, whatever, yeah. whatever would, right. you know, float in my boat at that time, cracker jacks, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I remember passing a little kid that was in my class, and I was on one side of the street, and he was on, and he stared at me and stared at me. So I remember going into the store, getting my my stuff, coming back to school, uh, getting there before the well before the bell was ringing, got close to my homeroom. And my teacher jacking me up, getting me, telling me I had not better skip school. And that kid that went and told that I was skipping school. Oh, and the bell was ringing. I was just got my snack. I remember never eating lunch in that school. Always going at lunchtime, going outside, mm-hmm. away from that. They never, the teacher never made me come in because they didn't care. Um, and so they didn't want to seat you, you know. Mm. And so, so that was a really 
weird experience. But the next year, I went back to we transferred back to Allen Junior High because then I was a junior. I mean, yeah. a middle school person, and I was on the east side with my people, and mm-hmm. it was great after that. And then you felt like you kind of felt inspired to start drawing again. Yeah, I started drawing again. I had a great teacher, Miss Gonzalez, and I used to tell her I used to draw. And she said, well, draw me something. And then I remember, and I got back in it, and it was great. So yeah. then after that, you know, I went on to Johnson High School with Judy Dillon, was my teacher, which is the best teacher ever. Uh, she really encouraged my art. And you uh, said, just, you know, like in a room full of people, what grade do you deserve? And I said, A plus. And she said, You deserve an A plus. And she mm. would give it to me. And it was, you know, it was great. It makes she, such a huge difference. Yeah, it does. You know, when people support your dream and you and not, you know, criticize you or treat you horribly because yeah. you can't do anything about your race. I mean, you're, you're black, you're black. I mean, yeah. you know, you who, you who God made. And um, we didn't have that problem at Johnson High School. Mm-hmm. You know, we just fought each other. You know, yeah. It was a difference, you know. So you were doing a lot of art classes in high mm-hmm. school. Yeah, I went to the Gifted and Talented program. They call them magnet schools now, but when I was in high school, I went to the Gifted and Talented that was at Austin High, and it was, but it was located at an Austin Community College in the annex. Mm -hmm. So all kids from all over Austin, art kids, would go and do a three-hour class with Carol Rogers, Mm. and so I did that for two years. And that was just all art. All art. Wow. And yeah, but it was like you take your morning classes at your school and you could take the afternoon classes at her school. Oh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. And at that time, did you think art was like a realistic career for your life or? No. You just, no. it was just something you thought would be a hobby? Yeah, yeah. I, I ne- it never was anything but just my drawing. I mean, I, it, didn't, it wasn't ever labeled. It didn't get labeled until I think I was about 22, 23. Mm. But it was just something I liked and I was doing. I mean, I didn't see, and this is so sad, uh, now when you think about the internet and the access that we have to everything, I didn't see a, a work by African-American artists until I was at least 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And it was Henry Otana's banjo player. And mm-hmm. it was like, because I would draw from the Renaissance. My mom had big bobbles with the Renaissance drawings and, you know, Michelangelo's, David, and all those, you know, yeah. different things. That's how I learned figure, figure drawing. And I learned, you know, how to do skin tone, how to do uh, textures, feet, hands, everything. Mm-hmm. From what, from just constantly doing work from those books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was great. And so you're in your 20s and then? I go to school, go to North Texas, you know, um, do art there. Don't like it. Don't like the school too far from home. Go up one summer, do a show uh, in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Sell out, never, mm. never. I know that was going to happen, but you know the prices weren't really high. You know, I look back on it. That's what I wanted. I was getting. That's when I kind of knew about being an artist. Uh, you want to do good work, and people respect it and want to buy it. Mm-hmm. And not only buy, just think it's great, and you get orders. And I didn't. I didn't know that could happen. And it was everything that I wanted as an artist. I didn't need school to, you know, to go to school to things like that. And I remember just getting on it and just staying there and doing work and doing start doing shows. I was going to Chicago. I mean, I would do shows in Austin, Louisiana. I was just going wherever it took me. 
Whatever, mm-hmm. because each show created the next show, and you know, you know, if you get a write up, and our friend said, "Hey, you need to buy Deborah's work," and so you know, my work was very romantic. It was the black romanticism. Yeah, tell me about what your work was like at that time. Yeah, it was. Uh, I always tell people it was like Norman Rockwell, but it was black. It was black Americana. It mm-hmm. was little kids in church, families, grandpas holding grandkids to go on fishing. Um, like people, very, very realistic, very realistic, very um, spiritual, and not just in the term church, mm-hmm. but just spiritual. Finding yourself and religion how very important in my family, and um, just being seen as uh, human, mm-hmm. and and not projecting a lot of negative work. I, want, I was trying to tell people, look, black people, we want to have, you know, we have two parents in our family. We just want our kids to go to school. We want, you know, to be safe and things like that. Yeah. And the things that, that were projected on TV was not a life that I knew. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have two parents. We are very active in our lives. We went to church every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Choir rehearsal on Wednesday. I mean, so we were a typical American family, but yet somehow that type of, you know, realism wasn't projected until mm-hmm. the Cosby show, actually. Mm-hmm. So so I wanted to create works that spoke to that idea of blackness and family. and, and um, Like an ideal Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like Norman Rockwell, not everybody mm-hmm. had you know those wonderful little puppies chasing you down the street and pulling your clothes off. Yeah. You know things like that. People going off to war, so- soldiers and stuff like that. He did do so. I actually was just looking at them today. He did do because I was researching Ruby Bridges, mm-hmm. and I did see that piece that he did about her, and I was like, well, I'd never seen that side of him. Right. That was interesting. Yeah, he he went into the uh, political realm. About six or seven times. Mm. He didn't stay there. Okay. He went in. Uh, in fact, he, and we'll talk about this later, he's inspiring a new bat to work for me. Oh, nice. I'm going home, as I, they say, okay. um, and some future works. Okay. We'll talk about those. Cool. But. So you're in your romantic period. I'm in my romantic period. And you're I, having shows. Having shows, doing well, all the way, keep going until, I guess I was like 32, 33, mm-hmm. and I felt... The work started to change. It started getting a little bit more abstract. And people would tell me, oh, damn, come on. You know, you're selling. You're doing good. You know, don't don't rock the boat. And I did. Yeah. I, remember, I remember awesome business, minority business guy asked me to do the cover. And I did a jazz girl, and it was very abstract. I know that wasn't what they wanted. They yeah. wanted, you know, what I've always done. I can pinpoint that was the time I knew the work had started to change. Yeah, And I... Kept going, doing that black romanticism. I could just think of an idea and then just go and do it. And wow. I could sell it even if I haven't even put pen to paper. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting feeling so bored and not challenged. And, you know, I started making the work bigger and thought that would help. And it didn't. And um, uh, soon, you know, you turn 40. And it's like, oh, my God, I'm 40. And... And still, I could feel the work, you know, asking to do something more. I decided uh, at 40 that in the summer, that's when I had my downtime, that mm-hmm. I would um, take a break and just let this work go the way it wanted to go. Th- I mean, three months, just don't hold back. Whatever it was going to do, it was going to do. I did that, and I am, I'm still on that summer break. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It nice. just, yeah, 
right yeah you know 13 13 years later yeah mm-hmm. and people fought you on that though, oh too, god yes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's so funny like they wanted to keep you the same forever and right they wouldn't didn't want you to grow they just wanted like this mm-hmm. works just stick with that right and a lot of people felt you know because the work was changing it was getting more complicated not easily read mm. that i was doing work with white people and I, I always remember one of my clients telling me that, that now you're doing work with white people. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so you're pushing stuff intellectually, and that's for white people. So anyway, mm-hmm. uh, I uh, I thought that was, you know, telling. Um, but what I was doing was being earnest with the work. Mm-hmm. I mean, we should dedicate ourselves. If we dedicate our life to this this journey, then we have to not hold it back. I see some artists and you know, not to call some names, in Austin, whose work has never changed, mm-hmm. and it has died down. And they call themselves master artists. They are not. Um, they, it's the same old work, you know, the same forms, the same shapes, the same colors, that they probably could do it in their sleep. Yeah. And they're too afraid to challenge themselves to change. I saw a very, very talented artist uh, who was selling to celebrities and all over in the early 80s and 90s i'm out of opinion yeah and it was wonderful work and you know a couple of years back i saw him on pecan street mm. in a little booth and the work was the same work i just wondered what would happen if he challenged himself move beyond those images mm. to to let them grow differently and what happened with me is that i had to pick up a book I had to start, I started reading theory, I started reading um, Cornel West, Franz Fanon, uh, Bell Hooks, and and then the work got more complicated, and then I realized I needed more scholarship, mm. that what I was trying to talk about, I didn't have the intellectual, you know, muscles, my, my muscles weren't strong enough to talk about all the things I wanted to talk about with identity, body politic, uh, hair, I mean, colorism all the things that, mm-hmm. that were right at the heart of the work I was creating. So I had to change. I had to go back to school. Mm. I had to go and get more knowledge in order to move forward. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, I had to go to school with millennials, which was tough. That's a prison sentence, you know. You got to go with millennials. And I did. And the work just grew and got better. You know, I, I let go of the reins of the work. I let in, you know, the literary stuff. It it moved textually, socially, politically, and it's the work that you see today. Yeah. What, what gave you the courage to make that shift? Do you think? Because that was, did it feel risky? It's like, oh man, I could, I'm ruining my, I could ruin my career, or did it feel like, you know, this is the right thing to do? I know I'm going to be okay. Well, I was too dumb to think, think along those lines. I think, like I always tell people. And, is that I've always dedicated my my life to the work, and whatever the work needed, that's what I did. Yeah, I never thought about what it would cost me. Mm. I didn't, when I lost those customers and all those clients and things like that, I didn't even think about that when I started doing this work. Mm. It, I mean, it was you know me dedicating as always, and when they saw it, they didn't like it, and I could have easily um, changed back to my old style, but. This had started to really work into me. It kept me up at night because I couldn't figure it out. Mm. I mean, it, it, it pulled at me when I was watching TV, uh, get back in there and, and figure this thing out. 
Um, what are you talking about when you talk about, um, you know, people see you as an animal? How do you, how do you, you work that into work? You know, where it's not the same old, the same old uh, tropes and ideas. Yeah. And um, so you were driven. Yeah, yeah, passionately about by working through these issues. Yeah. How do you talk about being vulnerable without tears yeah. in the work? That's 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 mm. really hard. I mean, if you want to talk about being fragile in a work, but not use tears, not use the same tropes, you know, and that was hard. Mm. And so that required a lot of failures, yeah. and I had them. Boy, I had some failures. So, but you did the work. I, I did mean, the work for years. Yeah, you just did the work. I did the work. Yeah, yeah. Without a lot of fanfare. Just, no. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Poor. I had the first time in my life as an artist. I you know, I had to get on welfare, which I never had. Just mm. food, food subsidy. I mean, and not. They didn't pay any of my bills, but, you know, I had to eat. I had to keep my gorgeous shape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm laughing because I'm chunky. Uh, <laughs> oh, stop. So, but uh, it, it's like, you know, I never thought that. That was something that I always kind of, you know, would tell people. I may be a star, but I never, the government has never had to pay for me. I never had to take care of me. I had a wonderful um I mean, landlord at that time who who understood what I was going through and never really pressed me, mm. you know, for rent at times. And it was just, it, living in Austin. It was tough, you know, trying to figure this stuff out. And eventually, I did, you know. And so now, when when I came back from you know my graduate degrees, you know, I just came and sit in Austin. I mean, I didn't come in and say, "Oh, I want to do these huge shows." No one will offer them, by the way. But I just. I just came yeah. in and I just started doing my work. Very under the radar, just doing stuff, you know. So, so. going to school, doing all the studying, that mm-hmm. that made the difference. It made the difference because I was able to find the language behind the work. I see a lot of artists out there who uh, who are doing work, but the, and they're doing very, very good work but there's no language behind you ask them to talk about the work and they cannot talk about mm. it and you know you don't have to be a road scholar but you have to this work has to land somewhere i mean how are you couching your argument and contemporary art based on race the big thing is race race religion and politics you know mm-hmm. so how do you say my work is about race and you can't talk about it. Mm. And so that's what's happening. That is what was happening to me is that I, I did not have the language. And I just said, you know, I got to go to school because, I mean, I'm getting murdered out here when people ask me and I get these soft, you know, softball answers and they and they come back at me as, as a hardball. And, they and challenge I'm, you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm ducking because I, I don't have, you know, the words to, to come back at them. It's very important when you're doing work, political-based work, to have something behind you that supports the work, you know? Mm -hmm. What specifically in school do you think gave that to you the most? Like it was a certain class or just a body of work you worked on in school or a teacher or... I went, when I went to Syracuse University and I was, took classes in African and African-American studies, that was it. Mm. Oh man, I sit in the front, of the class. It was the first time that I got so much knowledge about how important black life has been. Well, we, I knew commercially as far as you know product, but just the amount of c- contribution and 
you know, knowledge that we had put into this country in a way that was that spoke to me and spoke through my work. Mm. And that was it. That was it. I took every class I could take in Africa, African-American studies. And uh, it just it fueled this work. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are missing that, right? Yeah. I mean, they're just... Yeah. If you don't go looking for it, then you you're know. not going to get that. People get very comfortable in, in, in creating. But if the thing is, and I think Thomas Hart Benton said, art is about being uncomfortable. And if you're comfortable, then you need to do something different. You yeah. need to really, really start looking at your work and stop. Because technically, you're doing the same work. Yeah. You just did different colors. So what are you doing and what are you not doing to push the push the work forward? Be more on your edge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I uh this week I had an artist, I met with an artist to look at my work up at the Plant Museum. I can't believe that. But we we were talking and he told me, you know, uh why don't I start painting more, the collage and all that stuff like I knew what I was gonna do. I don't tell everybody. Yeah. But <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, I gotta keep my some of my secrets. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh he was saying, Well, eventually you can paint this whole thing. Why not just paint it? And I wanted to tell him I'm not trying to be an illustrator. You yeah. know, I'm trying to take the ordinary the everyday and make it extraordinary yeah. to make something totally different of, you know, of a product of arm, whatever. And I wanted to tell him, you know, that's the great thing about Kende Wally. If you look at his work, the one who did the president, mm-hmm. uh, President Obama's yeah. uh, portrait and his work, he makes it so accessible. But if you know what he's talking about, if you have the knowledge behind all that, it's so contemporary, you know, in the, in the sense that it's not illustrating. It's painting. So if you don't know how to push that envelope to make something contemporary where it fits into, uh, you know, a different type of market, it fits into a different language, um, then you're illustrating and you're painting. And it's okay, but if you're doing political work, you have to push that envelope. So, no, you're never going to see all my collages painted as full painting. They're gonna, it's going to be some paper in there. It's going to be some cut paper. It's going to be some blurred lines. It's going to be some blurred imagery. Um, it's going to be uh, shape shifting, you know, big hands, little hands. It's going to be all that stuff. But you will see my hand in the work, only because I'm putting that in to 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 draw in history, the history of painting, the history mm-hmm. of drawing. I'm putting in that into contemporary practice. So so yeah, that's what school teaches you. <laughs> to pull those things, you pull the past into the present, and you pull the future into the present. Yeah, and then you create work, and that's what you know my practice is about. Yeah, and understanding your context mm-hmm. and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So you finish school. Yeah. And what is your work? Are you just kind of start on a whole new series of work after that? Or how, what does that look like once well, you get out of school? When was that? What year? Uh, 2014. Okay. And Not that long ago. No, I'm still a baby out of school. <laughs> so what happened was um, I get out, come back to Austin, not knowing what to do. Couldn't find a job. Didn't want to teach. Even though I had master's degrees, I didn't want to teach. I, I just started doing smart. I always tell people, if you can't figure out what you need to do and you want to start something new, Go small, get very small. Mm. So I started a series. I went to Jerry's Autorama, got two tablets, eight and a half by ten. Started doing little, little small collages, mm-hmm. and just working through them. I said, let's just do tear these books up, and pull the pages out. Couldn't afford much. Started doing those little small collages. I get a call from Art Palace Gallery. 
uh, artist backed out of a show. He said, one person I know who has art, a lot of art, a lot of good art is you. Do you want to do it? Mm -hmm. I said, why not? Yes. So I did. And this is art that you made during school or after school? During During school. school. Okay. Uh huh. So he, he came by my studio, looked at the work. He picked out the work for the first show. I had Art Palace in 2014. I, um, Went there. I did pretty good. Was happy. Everybody was happy. And these are the small pieces. The small pieces of fourteen mm-hmm. by seventeen at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, did some grad work. Put it in there for my graduate thesis show. Then you know nothing really happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, came back to Austin. <laughs> great show. Yeah. And anticlimactic. Yeah, yeah. And you know started looking for jobs, jobs all that year two thousand fifteen. Couldn't find anything. Then I just you know was so poor again, and I mm. said. I'm going to get a job. Went yeah. down to the academy. Yeah. You know, they're always hiring. And I've worked there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, before you know it, I was in the shoes, shoe department selling shoes at the end of 2015. And it was, you know, I, I mean, I always tell them there's no small jobs, only small people. I, I tried to use that analogy to, to get to working there. And it was really tough. You mm. know, you have multiple graduate degrees and you're sitting there selling tubes. Yeah. You know, I only did 20 hours a week because I needed the other work time to do my practice. Right. I made a deal with myself that I would never take on more hours. But the time that I had off, I had to do work. I had to make sure that, you know, I was present in the work. And um, what a humbling experience! Though, it, right? was, it was, it was, yeah, it was. I mean, I would see people and I would run and hide. I didn't want anyone to see me in there working, and it was nothing wrong with it. Artists have taken on jobs like that before, but I had a certain status I felt in Austin before. Um, got an award from the president of the United States before. I've yeah. gotten Artist of the Year. I've done a lot of stuff, and I guess my ego was making me run around the store hiding when I saw somebody I knew. Mm-hmm. I remember in particular I saw this this guy, uh, and I, I remember saying, I said, This is this is only part time. This is this is not me. I I mean this is and he said, You're always gonna be amazing. Aww. You're a wonderful artist. I mean he was wonderful. I remember Jesse Bridgman. He was and I remember, and I, you know, and I went on by my business, and I remember hiding from a, a educator. I mean, oh God, people I went to school with, you know, and just hiding. I, I hid so much at that store. Yeah, you know, from people yeah. seeing me there working. So when did it change? I changed it. A lot of people didn't know I changed it. Oh. I uh, in March I went to do a show in South Texas, and I came back and said I can't go back there. I knew it, and I quit before anybody knew I quit. I didn't tell people I quit because nobody wanted to hear that. But I I couldn't do it anymore. I mean, there are places that are trapped places yeah. that before you know it, you're trapped there. And if you don't get out, Austin is one of those places, by the uh, way, FYI. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's one of those places in a, in, a, in, a, in a good way and in a bad way. It's a trapped city because it's, you can get very comfortable here. Mm-hmm. You don't move forward. You don't become... You then become a local artist and not and see I'm an Austin based artist. I'm not a local artist. Right. And then if you want to become a local artist, that means you sit here and you do all the little shows that they have around. You're always in the group shows. You're always on the street shows and stuff like that. You're look you don't push your boundaries. 
And see, when I tell people I'm an Austin-based artist, it's because I live in Austin. I don't show in Austin. Yeah. I show in New York. I show in Europe. And I show all over. So no relegated me to that place and that position where people become very comfortable. Getting back to my long, long story. but <laughs> I'm enjoying it. I appreciate it. <laughs> but anyway, so what happened is um, I told myself that I would give myself two years to figure that if this didn't get better after all my life doing this, that I was going to have to seek something else out. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was a, yeah, it was a big, big decision. And I, I told the Lord too, you know, and you were going to quit art altogether. I was going to quit art altogether. Mm. After all these years, all my time, 2000, uh, coming back, I can't remember that city in South Texas. It's, it's you know, it's, but it just was a long drive. Mm. And I had to be honest with myself. And I definitely wasn't going to work at no uh, academy. It's nothing wrong with working at the academy. It, uh, that's not why you're here. That's not why I was here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, I came back. I had a show in San Antonio at the, the other Carver Museum. Mm-hmm. And I was driving back. A collector called me. And, you know, hey, the last day of your show uh, is Sunday. Let's let's meet over there and let me look at it. I was like, damn, I just did this long drive not to go to San Antonio. and But I needed money. I had 89 cents in my bank account. Mm. And I went back to San Antonio. Uh, he came in, and he just brought work. He like it was a candy store. He was boom, boom, boom. I was happy. I was driving back. I was so happy because I made really beautiful money. Yeah. Uh, like this lady say, paper love. I had a lot of paper love nice. coming back. That happened on Sunday, on Wednesday. 2016, in March, the Polly Krasner Foundation called me. Mm. They had awarded me one of their grants. Mm. And that was hallelujah time. And I remember driving. I was going down uh, 15th Street right at Rio Grande. And I told the guy I got to pull over because I was so nervous. And I said, are you kidding me? He said, no. It was Charlie Bergman at the Polly Krasner Foundation in New York City. And he said, look, we just we just awarded you. Mm. One of our grants. And I just like, wow. He said, you get a year off to do what you need to do. Mm. And it was, you know, thank wow. the Lord. I mean, I went, I talked to my friend. We we divvied that money up to I got stipends every month. And I was able to buy paper. I, I was able to pay my rent and my lights and food. And what happened within that Krasner year is that I began to work without fear. Mm. Once the fear it was stripped away from it, I knew my rent was going to be. I mean, it's something very. I mean, when people, well, I guess you don't, you're not an artist. You you understand your work every day. You pay your rent, but when it's so up in the air, so so nervous that you might not have the money and those sleepless nights and stuff like that, and yeah. you know, to know that that was going to be taken care of and you still was allowed. I put myself on a schedule. Uh, I watched Leave it to Beaver. I watched Perry Mason. <laughs> At 9 o'clock, everything went off. I got in my studio, and I worked all the way to just Judy at 4 o'clock, took a two-hour break, 6 o'clock, 6 to 10, back in the studio. And I just worked. Now, so now I'm creating work where before I would create work and um, say, oh, don't put that face there. It may not work, you know. This is a beautiful picture. You cannot mess it up by putting that in. I mean, what if it don't work? So I wouldn't do it. So this time, 
because I didn't need the sales. I didn't care if work sold or not. Yeah. I put that down. And then, and then <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't work or it didn't work. But you know what? It, you know, and, I, and it, was a, it was great because it was like, you know, it was perfect. You know, you could just you could just do work, and if it, you know, if it bombed, it bombed. If you just do another one, total freedom, total freedom, mm. and that just something happened within the work. Uh, now we're in 2016 with the Pilot Krasner year. Arturo says, "Hey, let's do another show." It's two years later. Come there, almost sold out the show. Mm. It was great. Um, while we were having the show, a curator from New York came through and. Looked at the work and said, hey, I'm doing a show in New York at Volta in 2017. Um, will you be a part of it? It's a group show. Uh, we said, yes, we had to, you know, sell, you know, our gold teeth and whatever we had to get to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, our palace, we got there. We sold out the boo. We got there in March. And this is, I haven't even had my year yet. We got to Volta in March 3rd, opened March 5th. I remember that night, it was a lady came by, really beautiful, and she said, you know, who are you? I'm like, who the hell are you? <laughs> you know, don't come up to me, ask me who am I? And it was so funny, and I said, you know, I'm the artist here. And she said, where have you been? And I was like, where have I been? I was like, you know, it was weird questioning. Yeah. And I said, uh, I'm from Texas, you know, I'm from Texas, <laughs> from Austin. And she said, she said, you're going to do good. And I was like, well, from your lips to God's ear, that's what I always say. Yeah. And she said, and it was very flipped, too. And she said, she said I'm on the board of MoMA. Mm. She said, you're going to do good. And she said, <laughs> <laughs> and I remember she telling me my name, sweat start coming down like, like it was a racetrack, which one's going to hit the top of my lip fair. And it was like, I remember just getting panic attack. And she said, I think I might, I'm going to get a couple of these. And she said, here's my email address. And I remember I remember writing it down. I remember getting to back to the hotel, couldn't find it, and was able to find it because she emailed herself some images. And she said, I'm going to tell some friends, you know. Come out see the work, and that was the you know the VIP preview. And I didn't think anything of it. I, I mean, Mama was great, and you know, but that's just one woman talking. Yeah, sure. Uh, another guy came through. He's a friend of Mama. His name is Larry, and he said, "Who did this?" Like, again, you know, I said me, me, and he said, "Oh, this is good." He gets on Instagram. And he gives me a blast, you know, yeah. take pictures. He said, can I take pictures? He blasts me, said, you guys got to get down here, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, by Sunday, we had sold out the booth. We sold out the gallery, Art Palace Gallery, whatever he had. We sold out all that work. Then we sold <laughs> my studio. Mm. So I sold everything. Four days. Everything. Wow. <laughs> Everything. We sold 40, 48 pieces. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. They, people can't still believe we sold that much work. Yeah. But that's such a, I mean, that's a, I know it probably didn't feel like it, but that's a compliment. Someone's coming up and saying like, where have you, who are you? Where have you been? I mean, they're like, wow, right. why have I never seen your work before? Right. You know? Like, I'm still getting that from New York. Um, I, I always tell myself it's because people in New York think if they hadn't you know seen you before discovered you then you don't exist yeah. and <laughs> we know that to be different 
and and like yeah when i get interviewed they always say well you know like you're having a moment here and and you're old, and we <laughs> we don't know where you've been, what you've been doing, and it's we'll say, it's a history of African American artists tolling away in their studio practices without any recognition. That's not anything new. Yeah. I mean, you know, you look at Barker Hendricks. You know, he in the last years of his life, he got a lot of success, but he had always been working away. Yeah, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't have had that excess if you hadn't done all those years of work. Right, exactly. I mean, that's all there is to it. Yeah, and I always... And taking chances. Or... Exactly, exactly. And I always tell people, you know, they always say, I want to be successful, and then <laughs> you have to well, show me your work. Well, I don't have any work right now, but, you know, you know, and they don't have any work. You have to be prepared when success knocks at your door. And, and I was, luckily. Yeah. So, you know, there you go. So, so this, not, this last, not even quite a year. I've I've got a show at Mass Mocha next year. I'm gonna be. I was at the Studio Museum of Harlem this year. I've had major shows sold out Chicago, sold out Miami, sold out New York's first solo show, sold out San Francisco. Um, all my shows have sold out so far. And and you're at the Spellman. I'm so. at the Spell. I have Spellman a solo show, one woman show. It's. Uh, Spam Museum right now. I had a big ten page spread in New York magazine. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, a lot of other good stuff. Big gallery in London wants to show me in June. Mm-hmm. I mean it's just in two years I had told the Lord, two years I was gonna oh, Wow, you did it. I was gonna give it up. There's no quitting now. There's no quit now. Mm. Mm-hmm. Does it seem real? I mean Nope. I, I keep telling people it, it seems real now, but that's only after I went to Hawaii for two weeks. And oh, I was like beautiful. that's real, that's real. <laughs> yeah, that that's real. Yeah. You earned that. Yeah, but it was. I always kept telling. I felt like my sister was going to pinch me out of a coma, you know, because uh, I have a sister who's a painter, and um, I could see her like like trying to make wake me up or something, mm-hmm. and so now. It's real. I mean, I've sold to Beyonce. I mean, I've, I mean, it's texting Alicia Keys the other week. I mean, what the hell? I mean, <laughs> like, what the? You know, who is this person? And what do yeah. you have done with Deborah Roberts? That's what I want to know. So uh, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I guess that catches us up on your timeline pretty much, right? Where yeah. You're the, mm-hmm. To the current moment. Mm-hmm. So maybe let's talk about all this work you've been selling, what it's all about and how you make it, right? what it means. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell people the thesis of the work is a little girl who's between the ages of 18 years old mm-hmm. who's just come on her idea of beauty. And so the question I pose to people is, how has her beauty been imagined by art history, by pop culture, about American history and by black culture. Yeah. So I take those four things and I I move the work forward. I mean, I'll say, okay, so if we're relating to art history, you know, you have a history of artists like Frank Stella and Motherwell and all those guys who did these amazing big black and white paintings and talked about blackness, but not in, in relationship to race, but in color. And that will artists, you know, working along that time that never got any exposure, both men and women. And so 
how can I relate that to the work I'm doing now? So I will take a Frank Stella and, you know, just a copy and I will cut it up and make a dress and I will put it on top of a black body. Mm-hmm. And so I'm talking in relationship to art history in that, in that vein and or when I talk about pop culture, you know, I mean, you see some girls with some grills, you know, yeah. grills in their mouths. Um, you might see some, some, you know, some hip hop references and or uh, short dresses or you know, video vixen type little girls. Um, and then when I talk about um, history, American history, you'll see some oppression. You'll see some. Um, some flag skirts, you'll see some people fighting against patriot I mean this notion that black people are less patriotic mm. uh if we you know the 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 object of the protest if the protest is about uh race or how you're being treated by the police officers and and you don't fit in I mean everybody else are allowed to protest when black people protest it, it become riot. Yeah, you know. So if you look at patriotism, it has riot in the middle of it. You know the actual words. Yes. And so, so I think we're exercising those freedoms. Um, then you, we, I talk about black culture, on this notion of natural hair. Mm-hmm. We talk about colorism that that stems from slavery. We talk about religion and and this notion that it has helped us so to get through so much. Mm-hmm. You know, that that hand, that holding of the hand, uh, you'll see all of that in my work. And so 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 that that's the work. Um, and I do it under the lens of this little girl, because when do you know, we have this when do black women put on their gloves? You know, from what point did you become the head of the household, the, you know, the person who takes care of the family? When did that happen? So I know a lot of artists, we talk about strong black women. We do a lot of portraitures. We do a lot of paintings and all that. But I knew that no one was talking about how does that start? You know, when do those gloves come on? And so I started, you know, doing it at 8 to 10. At that age, we're already being groomed to to be tough, Mm. to to not seem vulnerable. We are vulnerable, but not seem vulnerable to to kind of have that, you know, raise your head, you know, you know, be strong, you know, don't cry. You, you have know, to put on your armor. When yeah, you go out in the exactly. World. You got to put on the armor. And and it starts so early. And and then before you know it, you're 18, 19, 20 and you already got your gloves. They already slipped on. Mm-hmm. And you didn't even know when it happened. You're watching your aunts and the way they 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 you know, navigate life and politics. And somehow, all of a sudden, you know, you're you're fighting those, those, those battles. Yeah. You know, you're in line to be the next person to fight those battles. So, so I wanted to show that in my work. I wanted to show the girls so, you know, young and vulnerable and, and adorable and, and powerful, all have strength, have weaknesses, all in the same time. You're looking at all of that. And, you know, when I read the Washington, I always talk about the Washington Post article about little black girls seem less vulnerable than their peers. It just it just kills me because mm. I know that's not true. Yeah. And we have to take on more responsibility because the way society and slavery was set up is that we are in a matriarchal, you know, society. 
And so there are things that that mamas tell girls to do very early. Yeah. They don't necessarily tell little boys to do. And before uh, and then you have to, you know, try like what? to Well, you know, my brothers all they had to do well, I have four brothers, three sisters, a big family. And I remember the boys, like, they had it easy. We had to do everything. We had to wash all the dishes. We had to clean the house, you know, wash clothes. We had to, they had to take out the garbage on Friday, and they didn't even do that well. Yeah. And um, and we had to just take on a lot of the responsibilities of keeping. When my mom wasn't available, we had to make sure the house was clean and all that stuff. And uh, we had to be the, the daddy, you know, when my father wasn't there, when he worked all day and he came home and went to bed and you know we had to you know tend to the young kids and stuff like that so my mom worked two jobs my father worked one job so Mm. you know it was like it was it was different and so when does that you know that my work ethic i think comes from her i mean she worked all the time she you know and i do i work all the time you know so um, me and my little uh, group of people, we figured out that I worked about between uh, maybe 69,000 to 7,000 hours last year mm. working, doing this work, trying to get it out till I finally realized I can't meet the demand. But it took all that time and effort to do all this work uh, to realize that. Yeah. You know, and so I'm at the point right now, almost a year, full year into this is that a I have to listen to the work I've always listened to the work um and it's and it's asking me no it's demanding <laughs> keeps you up at night <laughs> yeah it's demanding that I slow it down and get better okay it's demanding and i I can see it uh I can feel that you know it's 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 looking too much the same mm. and then my ideas are not being fully realized mm. and so the work is demanding that I slow it down it's it's also demanding scale no one no gallery nobody's asked me for that it's demanding that it, yeah. it's coming i noticed the last five or six larger works they they've been coming off the page yeah i wasn't you know purposely trying to do that the work has been just falling off the page. Yeah. And that means that it's, it needs to get larger. It's too, you know, ah, so it's right. asking for scale. And uh, so scale, scale uh, also requires more time to do that. So so I listen to the work when it tells me things like that. It's also telling me that there are areas that I have been collaging, that I have the skill level to do. Mm-hmm. And it's time for me to do them. Mm. And so that's what I have to do. Yeah. So I have to start, you know, painting a little bit more on the work. Yeah. Um, let's see what else is the work requiring me to do. Up until this point, though, I wonder as far as the work you've done so far, when you're making the collages, is every piece have a thought? Like, an, is it intellectual thought behind it, or is it intuitive? It is. Is it? It's is intuitive. it a mixture? It's okay. A, I think it's intuitive because I don't plan them out. I just. What I do when I find a research, when I find a face that I like, a little girl who's smiling, who's beautiful, and I think it's the essence of blackness. Yeah, I I find that face. So that is the structure. That is the base, the beauty, the base, the strength. And then I collage on top of that that face. I build on top of that into whatever happens. Yeah. So no longer you see in a full face. You see, and I'm asking people. 
not to look at these girls as partial people, but different people, not just monolithic thing. We're just not one person who's really good. We are multiple people who are very good. Yeah. So I build on top of that a structure of the face. Once I have the face, then the body come follows. You know, that's that's a little bit easier. The face is hard. It's the mm. hardest thing to do. I guess I was just thinking because you're so good at describing what the parts mean. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you kind of it occurs to you that you did it unconsciously afterwards when you're looking at it as yeah, opposed I, to planning it that way? Yeah, I think it happens after I look at it. And yeah. I could say, hey, you know, I, you know, like I've been using Muhammad Ali's fist in a lot of the work. Well, that comes from rejection. I was doing work and I applied to, you know, art pace and yeah. again and again and again. Got my rejection. And I remember, you know, I don't, personally like to feel powerless and i remember saying man that that really sucks and you know that was it wasn't one of my research days neither um i was i remember having the face done and the body and then i was just you know scrolling through you know the internet and came on ali's fist and it just I said, that works. Mm. So I remember going and get went the next day to Miller Blueprint to get it printed out and uh, come back, and I just dropped it, right, where it looked like that girl was, her fist was pointing. Oh, yeah, I've seen yeah. that one. Yeah. And it was like right there, and it was like a fist bump. Yeah. You know, it's all good. And that's <laughs> what I named the piece. It's all good. Yeah. You know, it's fine. I don't have to get in that show. It's all good. Yeah. And I remember how that made me feel. So I can't tell you how many people want that work and yeah. how many people, even yesterday, got an email. Is that piece available? It's like a virtual fist bump, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I don't really plan that stuff out. I think if I start planning, I might make more mistakes. And we're moving into while I'm planning now, which I normally, you know, don't uh, do. But I'm going to work on a series of four works for mass. I may hopefully have for mass smoke next year mm-hmm. where in it, I'm going back to my ideas of Norman Rockwell when he just, he just dabbled in politics a little bit, but he did four works called the four freedoms. Mm-hmm. And in it, he asked Americans to invest in America mm. through war bonds or saving bonds or, or just the notion of America, what America means. And, you know, shift ahead. What does America mean to us right now? Yeah. I'm going to take those four freedoms, freedom of speech. That looks different <laughs> than yeah. it looked back in 1950 or 1948. Uh, freedom of religion. Mm-hmm. It looks different today than it looks then. But that is one of our freedoms. Freedom from what? You know, you look at all the the, the merchandising and the politics and of that um, the Gucci's, the Nike's, all those brands mm-hmm. that we must have. The, you know, it's not want anymore. It's need. Um, you know, it's not need. It's want. So freedom from want. So I'm gonna mm. I'm gonna de- do it differently than Norman Rockwell because he was talking something different. So yeah. freedom of uh, religion, freedom from want, freedom of speech, and freedom to worship. Mm. Uh, freedom to worship. And freedom of fear can mean the same thing. Mm. If you are a Muslim in this country, it can mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. That so so what is fear? So I have to talk about fear and freedom of worship. How are those two gonna look? That is what's keeping me up. That is that 
it gets me so excited to, yeah. to figure that out. <laughs> I'm getting excited. I know. It was like, how can I do freedom of fear and freedom of worship, freedom of oh. worship? I mean, because if you, people look at a Muslim person and they're fearful. And then don't, I mean, I was in airport in New York City with a Hasidic Jew, who, who a Jewish person, who got up and did his whole, you know, morning, yeah. you know, routine in the airport. And... And everybody was looking. He didn't care. He tied his arm up. He put on his, you know, all the, you know, the, the 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 trimmings, and he did his spiritual, you know, mm-hmm. morning worship. No one was fearful of that. Mm. But had that been a Muslim person putting down the rug, yeah, washing his hands, mm-hmm. you know, singing to Allah, yeah, the police would have came. To, they would have put him in handcuffs. I mean, so many people wouldn't want to fly that day. You know, everybody would be afraid. So it just, it changes from freedom of religion. Mm. So, and freedom of fear. So I'm going to take my little girls. I kind of almost got the one. I don't know which is going to be freedom of fear, but I'm going to have a little girl, a little black girl, and she's going to be putting on her habib. Mm-hmm. And she's going to be, and what I want to have it in collage is her, you know, her hand going like this. So she's putting it on whatever the, you know, collage body. And that's going to move. That's going to be that picture. Mm. And it's going to be huge. You know, so it's going to be this big little girl who was, you know, putting on her clothes. And she's going to be, you know, eight years old, eight to ten years old. And so I'm, I think these are going to be amazing. It's going to be four of them. I'm going to do uh, one on paper, one on panel, one on canvas. I, I haven't, you know, figured out the last medium that I wanted to work on. I mean, material. Yeah. But, and it may be, again, maybe two papers and that. But it's, you know, the paper means something that's very fragile. And that may be religion and fear on those two. Mm. And the other two can, you know, be panel and and, and uh, canvas. So that that's something that I'm looking forward to doing this summer. I can see why. Yeah. I mean, that's exciting trying yeah. to figure that out. Yeah, and even talk about Norman Rockwell because it's important. What I mean, should we ask people to reinvest in America at this point, at this time when we're so divided? Yeah. You know, is it important for us to do that, to not to look at each other as – you know, a Trump voter, yeah. <laughs> not a Trump voter, you know, or being red or blue. I mean, he's definitely not asking us to reinvest in America in a way that it unites us, mm. you know. So why not use art and politic, you know, to, to give that language, that type of language to the world? So that's what I'm going to be working on. I mean, mm. I'm so excited. I mean, I want to put aside, I have a solo show coming up in L.A., in May, and I, you know, I, I have to do that first, and then I have to get to London, and then finally the summer, and I get to work on these works. I and that's just wait. for you. That's for me. Yeah, this is for me. <laughs> like, I love it. This is for Deborah. Deborah's so excited. <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah, I can't wow. wait. So, I mean, so you have all this power now. I mean, you are powerful, uh-huh. right? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I'm still, I always have people, I'm just an ordinary person, just a squirrel trying to get a nut. And um, I just, I I think I have an audience, I have people who can listen to what I say. And and I have to make sure what I say is on point. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not trying to cast any, you know, uh, pointing any fingers or blame people for certain things. Yeah, I am. Some things I am blaming yeah. you for. Yeah. I mean, the piece that's at the Blanton right now, the Philando Castile piece, the uh, Skewered, that I'm blaming people on that one, mm. you know, because they because people look at him as less human. Uh, as a person with a big nose and he was stopped and he was killed because of, of something that he had no responsibility for. So, yeah, but this, this work, this is for me. And I, I also want, I hopefully this will make people question their own ideas about patriotism and, and nationalist, you know, ideas. What does it mean to be a national citizen of this country? And so, you know, I'm not going to linger there. It's going to be this one shot, one big sock punch in the face, and that's it. And then I'm going to move on to what I've, I've normally been doing. But I think it's important to talk about these issues. Yeah. And um, and what better way than a soft-spoken man from the Midwest? Yeah. You know? And I can see what you're saying about being on point about your message because, like, a lot more people are paying attention now. Mm-hmm. So you have to have even more responsibility right. mm-hmm. to be clear about what you're mm-hmm. saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not just, you know, casting, I mean, uh, blame on people, you know, accepting that maybe I'm a little complicit in, in the things that are happening. You know, if, my, if I don't have to buy my kid every Michael Jordan tennis shoe that comes out, do he really need that yeah. or do he want it? Yeah. You know, so, you know, this, this, this whole, you know, consumerism that we're, we're caught in, we have to have, you know, the, the newest Apple watch, uh, mm-hmm. Apple phone or uh, whatever. It's like a competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I'm looking forward to even doing that project. Yeah. That part of it. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. I can't wait. I, I'm, I mean, I'm really, when we're talking about it, I'm seeing a little, I'm, <laughs> you know, and I've been trying You're to. like, put, when are you leaving? I yeah, got to get to work. I know. I've been putting it, and I kept telling, um, I, I, I had a lady come in, uh, do a studio visit and I said, I don't have the language for this work. She said, you have the language. You just have to write it out now. You have the language for it. So I can't wait to be in here to work on those projects. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I'm just thinking about something you just said. You said you used to apply to things and you wouldn't get them and you felt kind of powerless. But now you're in the spot. Like you decide if you want to participate with someone. You can decide if you want to be in a gallery or not. Right. Or, I mean, that's the power, right? Yeah, I mean, that's you have the, the power now. I have and the power. freedom. Yeah, and the freedom to do it, yeah. Um, I mean, that's wonderful. Yeah, I don't, I mean, we all get rejections uh, all the time. Being an artist is about rejection. And you can pick and choose what you want. I can um, pick and choose who I can sell work to. Before I didn't have that, I had to sell to everybody. Yeah. Um, I can pick and choose, um, you know, which gallery I'm going to show with. You're right. You have more power. I have more power than I had in the past. Yes. And I know you're going to keep working. So it doesn't, it's not like you're going to sit back and. No. <laughs> I'm not sitting back on my morals. No. <laughs> I'm always working because, you know, I don't know how long this is going to last. And, and one of the things I want to do, this is my time at bat. Yeah. And I'm not going to do a walk. I'm yeah. gonna swing at it, so home I decided. Uh, yeah, I'm here for a home run. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm taking, you know, big swings. I think you're already up to like seventy-seven. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know. I love it. Yeah. All right. Well, we yeah. could we could end it there if you want, or if you want to talk about anything. else. No, I'm good. I'm good. This would be great. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Well, Deborah, I really appreciate your time. I re- really appreciate you sharing with me and uh, letting me come into your studio and. Watch you work a little bit. Yeah. 
uh, of Seth. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming by. And uh, I look forward to uh, catching up on these podcasts. I want to see my friends. I want to yeah. see what they said and stuff. And, and how other artists are thinking in Austin and moving forward. That's- that's the goal of what I'm doing is I want to share everyone with everyone else. If they okay. want to listen, you know, we can yeah. all learn about each other. And That's right. It'll be good. And we'll be more connected. I so, agree. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues and consider giving it a review on iTunes. That could help others find it and motivate them to give it a try. At AustinArtTalk.com, you can visit each episode's webpage to find links related to the relevant and interesting people, places, and things mentioned by each guest. And thanks to those who have reached out with encouragement and positive feedback. I really appreciate it. All the best to you and take care.